Welcome to Clary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. We focus to date largely on the EU and the UK, neglecting a country where antitrust law was born and whose framework and standards have served as a global model for many years. I'm talking, of course, of the United States. We're going to rectify that omission in a series of three podcasts with guests from Clary Gottlieb's market-leading, award-winning US antitrust practice. Our first podcast today is on merger control. The second in the series will be on litigation, and the third on big tech and section two of the Sherman Act. Today's guests are a 45-year veteran of the antitrust world, a former director of the Bureau of Competition at the FTC, an acute observer, a leading jurist, and a famous practitioner, George Carey. He's going to be joined by Elaine Ewing, one of the brightest stars in the DC Beltway. George, you've been at the center of the antitrust world for almost half a century. I'd be really interested in your historic perspective on the progressive thinking of the US agency heads, who, as you know, have called into question the consensus that has dominated for most of your career. A couple of examples. In April of this year, Jonathan Cantor, Department of Justice Assistant Attorney General said, I'm here to declare that the era of lax enforcement is over and the new era of vigorous and effective enforcement has begun. And in May, FTC Chair Lena Khan called for a sweeping reassessment of competition law with one immediate area of change being merger control. George, what's going on? And did you see this coming? Uh, thanks, Nick. Um... What is going on? That's a great question. Uh, I think what's going on is we're seeing the triumph of politics over economics, frankly. Uh, since the Carter administration, there's been a pretty broad-based and bipartisan consensus in the US that antitrust ought to be driven by the lodestar of consumer welfare, the economic framework. Uh, some people attribute that to the Reagan revolution, uh, but I don't think that's accurate. I think the Carter administration also put economics as the primary lodestar of antitrust enforcement. They deregulated, they recognized the importance of efficient markets and global competition. At that time, it was the Japanese that were beating our industrial base. And I think there was a bipartisan recognition that our antitrust laws had to recognize that reality and apply economic principles. Of course, the Reagan administration took it to the ultimate level, but then in subsequent years, it became very clear that economics is not a defense get out of free card. Economics can work both ways. It can be a tool for finding anti-competitive behavior as well as finding that certain behavior is not anti-competitive. And we saw the growth of a unilateral effects analysis based completely on economics. This framework, uh, persisted through the Clinton administration, through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and up until the Trump administration, really. So what's happened since? I think what we're seeing is a symptom of the larger political dysfunction, if I may say so, in the United States. We are seeing the rise of populism. We've seen a move to the far left in the Democratic Party, 
We've seen a move to a kind of a strange conservative populism on the Republican side. And we've seen people elevating political objectives over the economic framework that has, I think, been a great engine of progress in the antitrust field over the last 50 years. Uh, on the right side, we've seen concerns about tech and their implications of their market power on uh, political discourse, uh, censorship in the social platforms and the like. We've seen the Trump administration challenge the Time Warner AT&T deal. Uh, some said because Trump was mad at CNN, uh, they brought the case, they lost. And now we're seeing the other side of that. We're seeing a concern on the part of the left about big tech, about billionaires generally, about income inequality. And we're seeing concerns beyond the economic framework that antitrust has been guided by over the last 50 years, uh, even concerns about social goods in antitrust enforcement, labor policy, racial policy, environmental policy. So it's, as I say, it's, I think, a, on both sides of the spectrum, we are seeing politicians, policymakers using antitrust as a tool to accomplish non competitive goals. Was I surprised? Uh, that was the second part of your question, Nick? Yes, I was surprised. And I'll just tell a little anecdote to demonstrate that I was surprised. Um, I remember having a conversation with a Republican FTC commissioner, Joshua Wright, as he took office, and I asked him about his priorities. And one of the things he called out was, I'm going to get a Section 5 statement. Section 5 of the FTC Act prohibits unfair methods of competition. So as written, it's pretty broad-based, undefined, unspecific. He said he wanted to get a, F, a, a Section 5 statement that made clear that Section 5 was to be interpreted along with the antitrust laws as a consumer welfare standard tool, and that it shouldn't go beyond that. And I said, Josh, you're wasting your time. Everybody agrees with that. That's not controversial. Uh, you should be taking on bigger projects. Um, notwithstanding the fact that he uh, was a young whippersnapper, uh, he was right and I was wrong. He did get a consensus statement. The Democrats and the Republicans both accepted it. The new administration rejected it, um, basically said it's no longer operative because of their rejection of that standard. So I was quite surprised that we would have such a radical shift so quickly on such a basic and fundamental principle of antitrust enforcement. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, um, George, and not wanting to get into uh, US politics. Um, we had Professor Eleanor Fox on a few weeks ago. And one of the things she said and has said, as you know, is that what we're seeing now is a reaction to under enforcement, um, over permissive uh, merger control that's allowed some markets to become too concentrated to the detriment of consumers. Do you accept that thesis at all? Well, I think it goes back to your earlier question. And the two quotes that you brought up, I think, are particularly instructive in that regard. So one of the quotes had to do with lax enforcement. The other quote had to do with a sweeping reassessment. I view those as two different things. So on lax enforcement, uh, I do think that there has been a push uh, coming, for example, from 
Thomas Philippon, a professor at NYU and a French economist who talked about uh, basically uh, real, reassessing the US antitrust policy on the basis of seeing the results of increased concentration. He wrote a uh, uh, very extensive book basically arguing that America has gone away from its free market principles. He called it the great reversal. And he tried to demonstrate empirically that increased concentration has led to higher prices, less entry, less innovation. Uh, in terms of the lax enforcement, I think there is a case to be made that we ought to assess whether we're drawing the lines at the right place, particularly in merger enforcement. You know, whether a, a six to five or a five to four or a four to three is the right place to cut it off, whether this so-called Corneau theory where just reducing the number of players results in higher prices is right or not. I think that's all fair game. And I think it goes back to the economic roots of antitrust and reevaluating that is highly appropriate. Um, asking the question whether we're defining markets so narrowly such that we're ignoring the bigger picture, for example, in pharmaceuticals, where there are a few very large big pharma companies who can do clinical trials, bring a product to market. Uh, are we looking product by product in a way that we're looking at the trees instead of the forest and ignoring big issues? I think that's fair game. The sweeping reassessment, which tries to bring in other goals, non-economic goals, uh, political goals, goals about labor policy, that to me is where antitrust has gone off the rails. So uh, I think it is fair to look at the enforcement record and to apply the consumer welfare standard uh, robustly. I think it's very dangerous to start inserting subjective political views into the antitrust process on the other hand. I'd like to bring Elaine in now. Um, Elaine, you heard George talking about the uh, relegation or the emphasis of the consumer welfare standard. And he referred to how the FTC started to consider labor, employment considerations in its merger reviews, um, expressing concerns that consolidation may affect wages and job prospects. Uh, again, a two-part question, what's your reaction to that? And secondly, how do you see that concern uh, or those sets of concerns manifesting themselves in day-to-day -day practice and the way in which you're presenting cases to the agencies? Sure. So first to start, there might be some instances where you should look at labor. If you have two highly specialized employers of one set of employees with a particular skill in a narrow geographic area and they're merging, maybe there is something to think about in terms of how many job options individuals have. There are a few cases where you could imagine that would matter. The vast, vast, vast majority of mergers, job prospects are not going to be an issue. Um, so how are we seeing this come up? Not a ton is how I would think about it. It's out there. We're getting questions. We've had questions from agencies like, what percentage of the acquirer and target's employees are unionized? So looking at is this transaction going to lead to less unionization? Because hypothesizing if you have a target that's highly unionized and an acquirer that's not, is that going to have some kind of effect? At this point, though, what we're seeing is questions being asked, not enforcement action being taken. And so it's a process to go through with staff where you give this kind of information in some cases, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. It's kind of a distraction, not the core of reviews. 
Um, there's one caveat I would add to that though. So we're talking about mergers today, but another big trend in US antitrust enforcement and part of this rethink of antitrust enforcement is the aggressive enforcement um, on labor issues and particularly related to no poach. And this comes into the merger discussion because a lot of the no poach investigations that DOJ has brought started with merger reviews. And so parties that are merging and getting to the second request phase where you're producing hundreds of thousands of documents need to be very cautious that they're not inadvertently exposing themselves to potentially criminal liability on employment or other issues. And that's a new one that has come up in the last few years um, to be mindful of. But the labor issues and wage issues in antitrust merger reviews are, are kind of a side so that's interesting. So long on rhetoric, but practical implications so far at least seems fairly limited. Right. And that could change. I mean, that there are a lot of there's a lot of rhetoric and less, not as much enforcement as there one might expect from the rhetoric in many areas of this um, administration on antitrust. And so that could change, although I'm not I wouldn't bet on it, given what we've seen so far. George, I'd like to stay with the practical implications of the new world in which you're um, in which you're operating. We've heard, obviously, you have a point of view, uh, a philosophy about what antitrust should be and how it should be um, applied. You're a jurist, but you're also a practitioner. Um, and we're in the job of um, representing our clients before the agency is doing the best job possible to secure the best result. So what are the practical implications of what would seem to be quite a significant change in policy? How has the new uh, environment impacted the risk assessments and the timing guidance that you're giving clients? What advice are you giving clients about the best strategy to secure approval? I'll get your view and then I'll turn with the same questions to Elaine. Yeah, so it is very much the case that you have to be on high alert with respect to any deal that is of any kind of consequence here. Uh, yes, there is an uptick in rhetoric, but we've also seen some cases that one would not have expected to have been brought a few years ago. We've seen vertical cases, for example, that historically have been, have been uh, waved through with remedies rather than going to court and trying to block those deals. And we've seen those that have been supported not only by the Biden administration, but also by the Republicans on the bipartisan FTC. So the FTC is a bipartisan body. It always has a couple of members of the minority party. And we have seen vertical cases that have been voted out by the Republicans on the committee along with the Democrats. So advice number one is don't limit yourself to thinking that there's going to be a concern only if the deal is horizontal among in a concentrated market. Vertical deals are going to get a lot of scrutiny and vertical deals need to be assessed in terms of their economic impact. Number two, I don't think you can expect that the rigorous economic analysis that we did previously is going to necessarily prevail. I think if you look at the Facebook case that was recently brought where Facebook was acquiring a very small competitor by any traditional economic metric, that case would not have been challenged previously. That case was one where, at least if you believe the parties, the staff had indicated they were not uh, seeing any anti-competitive concern, yet the FTC brought that lawsuit. So every deal is on the table. Companies need to be aware of that. What advice are we giving? Uh, the deal is gonna take longer, number one. If it's a big deal, a high profile deal, Number two, you need to front load the process. 
you need to front load the analysis, you need to do it thoroughly, you need to do it on the basis of the sound economics, uh, but you also then need to look at these other aspects that Elaine has talked about and that uh, Chair Khan has talked about. What is the impact on employment? Uh, if there's going to be a reduction of employment as a result of efficiencies, how can you explain that that will actually make a stronger competitor and that that will also make a stronger employer such that the remaining employees will benefit from that strength? So thinking about all of those issues in advance, front-loading the case, uh, front-loading the second request compliance, which is a very expensive proposition. Uh, in the past, one might have thought on a deal that was not problematic by traditional standards, you could delay that, save the money, interact with the staff, get the clearance, and avoid having to incur millions of dollars to comply. Uh, nowadays, I think the better advice is if you have any thought that the agency will scrutinize the deal, you need to take control of the clock, you need to comply, uh, you still need to conduct your dialogue with the staff, answer all their questions, but don't leave it to the end and don't assume you won't have to do the, the hard work of complying. So take control of the clock, think of all the issues, front load the analysis, and uh, cross your fingers. Two things I would add, I agree with everything George said. Um, two things I would add though. One is just that some deals, deals are still getting done. Some deals are getting done in the first 30 days without a phone call, even deals that involve NAICS code overlaps um, or companies that are well-known. Some deals are getting done after rigorous and painful second request processes to varying degrees. Um, and everything George said about front-loading second request compliance and being prepared to go on your own if staff won't negotiate with you on second request compliance is absolutely right. And then some deals are getting done after litigation where merging parties keep winning. Um, so a lot of deals are still getting done. And um, I think that's important to know that not all um, is lost. And the other thing I would add is timing and building timing into a merger agreement for an extended review. Um, and thinking when you're negotiating your merger agreement, even of timing for litigation, um, it's been almost two years since the Penguin, Simon & Schuster merger was announced and they don't have a decision yet. Um, there's a trial in August. That's a really long time, but it's, it's not the only case that's gone that long and second request processes are taking longer and longer as well. And so um, 18 months, 24 months in merger agreements is more and more common um, and, and there's a good reason for that. You don't want to be in a position where the agencies can basically run out the clock on your merger agreement. You want to them to know that you have space to litigate, regardless of whether you actually intend to litigate. Yeah, I think Elaine has made a really good point there. And I just add on to that. Uh, one of the things that we're being very attentive to is what does the merger agreement itself look like? If you're representing either the buyer or the seller, you need to have a keen awareness of what issues are likely to come up you need to have thought of those well beyond the traditional issues, and you need to build in protections in your merger agreement, either enough time to get it done, as Elaine just commented, uh, out if you're the uh, acquired company and you're worried about your employees, you're worried about how long you can be hanging out there with a deal that hasn't been consummated, uh, ticking fees, all of those things. And again, it goes back to a correct assessment of what the risks are, which means 
not only knowing what the policies are and what's likely to come up, but getting on top of that even before you sign the merger agreement. George, I'm hearing you say that economics can still be important. There was an old article by uh, Bill Kalaski that I thought was terrific, talking about sound evidence and hard data, um, but particularly important in the event of litigation. And we'll come to litigation in a second, but just staying on the question of um, whether it makes sense to invest in economic evidence. I don't hear you to say that that's not a good idea in the current um, environment. Oh, quite the contrary. Absolutely, you need to invest in economic evidence. You need to you need to come at it with the moral high ground, if you will. You need to be able to demonstrate that the transaction is going to be good for consumers. And while that's not your burden under the law, the burden of proof is on the government. As a practical matter, it is your burden to demonstrate that to the agencies. So that means sound economic analysis, front loaded, very rigorous, absolutely. And I would say one other thing, you know, the economic analysis tells you what's going to happen as a result of the deal, where the efficiency is going to come from, what the potential price increases are, how those balance out. In terms of these extraneous concerns, as I call them, um, it also is informative as to that. I mean, it is, I guess I believe fundamentally in economics. So if you tell me what constituency you're trying to protect, I can tell you how an efficiency enhancing merger will impact that constituency. And most of the time, if you're creating value through efficiencies, some of that value will be shared with employees, with the community. It gives you a, a cushion for environmental investments, et cetera. So you can address the non-consumer welfare issues by using those same economic tools. Changing topic slightly, Elaine, for many years, we in Europe regretted the fact that there wasn't the same transparency in the US as to the agency's thinking, as you know well, at the end of uh, an investigation uh, in Europe and in the UK, unless it's a very simple case, the agencies will publish a decision explaining their approach to market definition, competitive assessment, why they're approving a deal or uh, prohibiting it. Uh, we've lived with the fact that the US agencies are uh, don't, but I've been hearing recently that the agencies have been issuing close at your own risk letters. So what are these and what are the implications of receipt of these letters for clients? I'm first going to um, remark on where you started, which was the lack of transparency in the U.S. process, which I 100% agree with. Um, and that's one of the things that frustrates me most about the U.S. process is the lack of transparency. And in fact, one of the things I routinely send first-year associates to do on a new case is go read the European Commission precedent, even if there are, it's not, even if our case doesn't involve European markets, um, it's an incredibly useful place to start. And I wish we had that kind of resource in the US. Um, but that's a digression on these close at your own risk letters, which are in some sense, the opposite of transparency. Um, what they are are letters telling merging parties that while their waiting period has expired, their investigation has not the investigation has not been closed, and the agency could still bring enforcement action. It's a bit of a strange dynamic because it was always the case that agencies could bring enforcement actions after a waiting period expired. Um, the expiration of a waiting period is, does not prevent the FTC or DOJ from bringing an action to challenge a merger, as the FTC's challenge of um, prior Facebook acquisitions makes clear. When these letters first came out, 
it was there's a lot of buzz and parties wondered what was going on what do these letters mean should we close should we not close the practical reality became clear pretty quickly that at least in most of the cases i'm aware of um there was no further investigation so you would get the letter and that was the last you would hear from the agency staff i'm aware of some cases where the letter was received and there had never been prior contact with agency staff um to even know that an investigation was open so once parties figured out that the letters did not mean there was an active investigation visible to the parties. They got comfortable closing over them and got to the point where they're putting provisions in merger agreements saying, to be clear, one of these letters does not prevent us from being obligated to close. And anecdotally, I actually haven't, I don't know, George, if you have, I have not received one of these or heard as much about them in the last few months. It may be that they have fallen by the wayside because they didn't have an effect. George, you've touched on uh, the role of the courts. And of course, judicial review um, has always been a critical part of US merger control. We know well that unlike in Europe and elsewhere, where we have administrative agencies that reach decisions that can then be appealed to courts, the US agencies have to go to a court, persuade a judge to enjoin a merger. So despite the calls for strengthening uh, enforcement and the cases that have been uh, brought, and you've alluded to some of them, it seems the agencies are failing to win trials before the courts or are on something of a losing uh, streak with recent losses in several cases. I've got a kind of three-part question here. They're all connected. Firstly, what's going wrong for enforcers? Uh, secondly, do you think it will cause them to bring fewer cases? And thirdly, I've had some suggest that Maybe the agency heads aren't as troubled by this as one might think, and it's part of uh, what Blackadder might say is a clever plan to uh, encourage Congress to, uh, to introduce legislative change uh, to make it easier for the agencies to uh, prevail and harder for the courts to stand in their way. Yeah. So what's going wrong? Uh, frankly, what's going wrong is that the agencies are focusing on theoretical harms and not doing as much of the hard work of proving as a factual matter that there will be actual harms. And I think we've seen that in a number of cases. I think the most recent is the Illumina Grail case where the administrative law judge said very clearly at the beginning, uh, I understand both sides are telling me that this is a case of life or death that involves cancer testing. And the judge basically said, look, I, I understand it's a case of life or death, but that cuts both ways. If I block the deal, then perhaps these cancer tests that Illumina could have disseminated more broadly, brought to market more quickly, will not be available to as many people, and some people might die as a result. If I approve the deal, maybe that'll result in a reduction in competition, which will mean less innovation, which means some people will die because they won't have the benefits of those innovations. So that rhetoric about life-saving importance doesn't cut one way or the other. I need facts. And when the case went to trial, uh, the parties prevailed on the facts. The parties were able to show that these other tests that were going to be competitively disadvantaged were phantom. They were people's hopes to have other tests, but nothing concrete, nothing that was going to come to market anytime soon. Uh, some people testified they were 10 years away, and the judge just was not prepared to sacrifice the lives of some people today for the possibility 
of innovation 10 years from now. So the facts matter. I'd say another example is, is the T-Mobile and Sprint trial, where the agencies went in and said, it's a four to three. There's a presumption. Uh, you can assume that competition will be reduced. But the parties, uh, the government's economic expert admitted that if there were substantial cost savings and capacity expansions that flowed from the fact that you could combine resources and be more efficient, that that could benefit consumers. He, the, the paradigm was there not only from the party side, but from the government's own economic expert. And so the question comes back to the judge. Forget about presumptions. Forget about all this theory. What is going to happen if this goes forward? What's going to happen if it's not? And the judge decided the world would be a better place if it went forward. So there's got to be a focus on the facts. Uh, on your last question about whether this is some Machiavellian plan to change the law, there clearly is an intent or a desire on the part of the current enforcers and their sponsors on the Hill, Senator Warren, uh, Senator Sanders, that, um, and to some degree, Senator Klobuchar, who's a little more moderate, there is some interest in passing bright line rules that limit the ability of parties to argue on the basis of facts, uh, to make it that, you know, if you're going from four to three, it's automatically a problem, that kind of thing, or at least to strengthen the presumptions. And losing in court could provide some fuel to that. But uh, I think the better view is that if the government can prove its case, the present law does allow for it to win cases. They have won cases in the past. It's a matter of doing the hard work rather than resting on presumptions. Thanks, George. Uh, you, you touched on changing the goalposts and the guidelines have obviously played a critical role over many years in um, establishing the framework um, uh, that the agencies apply to analyzing mergers. Elaine, in September 2021, as you know, the FTC took the highly unusual step of withdrawing the vertical merger guidelines just published in 2020 claiming that the guidance documents included, and I quote, unsound economic theories, unsupported by the law or market realities. And at the beginning of this year, the FTC and the DOJ announced a public inquiry aimed, they said, at strengthening enforcement against illegal mergers with a call to modernize the guidelines to better detect and prevent anti-competitive deals. So any predictions as to what these new guidelines are going to look like? And do you think the courts are going to follow them? Sure. So I think the, they will be consistent with the expressed rhetoric of mergers are generally anti-competitive and that there is a, not presumption in a legal sense, but an assumption that a merger is anti-competitive and that mergers are bad. I think they will have come at it from that perspective. Um, I think one area of focus I'm expecting to see is focus on competitive harms, even when one of the companies involved is quite small. We've, you've heard a lot of talk about killer acquisitions, and that's one flavor of small company that is still important, but there's also potential competition. A small company could become more significant and they're not, the acquisition isn't designed to snuff out that small company, but it's going to prevent the competition that they would have otherwise um, put in the market and also innovation competition, which ties into, um, can tie into potential competition. So I think you're going to see more of a focus on smaller firms and the acquisition of smaller firms by particularly huge firms. Um, we'll see if huge firms get particularly called out um, in any way as some 
bills that have not gone anywhere have contemplated beyond the guidelines. So I think you'll see all of that. I think you will see references to the labor and employment issues we talked about earlier. In terms of how courts are going to look at them, I'm not convinced that courts are going to endorse guidelines that are a big departure from the historical guidelines and the precedent that's based on those guidelines. Um, I think courts tend to focus more on case law than the guidelines in any event. And there is historical case law that is built on these guidelines. Um, but I don't think that the courts are going to immediately see new goalposts when the guidelines change um, and think, okay, that's the law we're interpreting now. I think they're going to look at the case law that exists and continue to enforce it. And the case law, in many cases, can be more favorable than the guidelines, I would expect. George, can I bring you in just to give your perspective on whether you think the courts will uh, apply new guidelines if they are, as Elaine said, consistent with some of the rhetoric? Yeah, um, frankly, it depends on where they go. I have my doubts. To the extent that they incorporate non-economic factors, I have my doubts. I think that the reason the courts have embraced the guidelines historically is that it created a framework that they could apply to decide cases. It was no longer, you know, how do I judge if four to three is bad or nine to 10, 10 to nine is bad or 20 to 19. You know, going back to uh, Vaughn's groceries from the 1960s where a 5% plus 3% merger was condemned. The value of the guideline to the courts is this gives me an, a framework. And the Supreme Court endorsed the economic framework. The guidelines tell me how to apply it. I'm not an economist, but this is a useful tool. So over the years, starting with the guidelines of the uh, early 80s in the Reagan administration, uh, through the unilateral effects discussion in the 90s, through the guppies of the aughts, uh, unilateral effects kinds of analysis, all of those were refinements on the economics. Economics moves ahead. That economics becomes conventional wisdom. It becomes incorporated in the guidelines. Judges have confidence that if they apply that economic framework, they're going to be consistent with the case law, which is economically based. And they're, they're applying it correctly in terms of new learning and economics. If there's a new version of the guidelines that then takes it the next step in terms of where the economic learning is, I think they'll get credibility. Um, uh, you know, I think the efficiencies portion, which was added in the late 90s and reincorporated in the 2010 guidelines is a good example. There is some case law out there that says efficiencies don't matter, but to the extent there's this consensus and it's in the guidelines, uh, in the T-Mobile case, the courts were willing to apply it. If they deviate from this overall structure and go off in other directions, or they simply say, we want a presumption that we win if we bring this kind of a case, I think judges are going to be skeptical because now you've got a divergence between the governing case law from the Supreme Court uh, in the modern interpretation of the antitrust and where the agencies want the court to go without this North Star of an economic analysis behind it. I think that will cost the guidelines credibility if it goes in that direction. So it depends on where they come out. If they simply say in the vertical context, for example, there's no presumption that a vertical deal is efficient you know, fine, then everybody's out there proving their case. If they go further and say vertical deals are presumptively illegal, I think the courts are going to have a hard time following that. Thanks, George. We've uh, spent quite a bit of the podcast talking about substantive uh, questions, judicial review, the guidelines, progressive agenda, and so forth. 
Uh, but process is important too. Um, Elaine, Lena Khan, the FTC chair, has said that they're looking to revise the HSR form to require more information up front, a bit like the European model, uh, whereas we know Form CO requires an awful lot of information before you can uh, trigger a filing. HSR today is um, generally quite straightforward to complete. That would be a pretty significant change in US merger control. As you know, EU filings frequently involve many months of pre-notification work, particularly in complex cases. Do you think these changes are going to be adopted? Um, I'm going to start by saying I sure hope not. Um, that is not one of the best things about the European process. I love the decisions. I don't love the, the Form CO process. I, I also, one important distinction is the European Commission received in 2021 about 400 merger filings in the US. It's more like 2,000 transactions a year. We have much lower thresholds. And if 2,000 Form COs is a huge amount of effort and work and also a lot of because we also have minority investments that are reportable, a lot of those transactions are transactions that are things like executives buying shares in the company they work for. Um, and no one should be providing reams of information about that kind of um, transaction. There may be some changes. I can't see um, a huge move towards requiring a lot of information. I think that's one area too where the business community would really push back if there was a um, significant burden imposed on companies who want to do deals in the filing process. I think that would be very unpopular and hope that that could be shut down pretty easily. Um, you could imagine modest changes to the HSR form. There have been um, some modest changes over the years. In 2011, there was the addition of item 4D documents talking about synergies. And could you see a few changes along those lines? Absolutely. But I don't think we're going to switch to a, a form CEO model. Thanks, Elaine. So we move now to the quick fire part of the podcast. I'm going to fire a few questions at both of you. Um, the answers don't have to be as long as some of the others. Uh, first question, with all of these policy shifts going on and so much activity, what can in-house lawyers do ahead of a transaction to get on top of the situation? Well, uh, this may be self-serving, maybe not. I'll let you judge, Nick. Uh, hire the best and most experienced antitrust team you can hire. Uh, do the work up front, front load the entire process, do the analysis up front, be prepared for unorthodox theories, front load the second request compliance if you are pretty confident you're going to get it. You know, start that on day one, uh, take control of the clock, prepare to litigate, and do the economic work. Elaine? Yeah, I think. Um... All of those things and also expect the unexpected. There are going to be novel theories and questions and merger reviews are taking longer and the pace of change in merger reviews is accelerating. So you're trying to game out what the merger review process is going to look like nine months from now um, when you're signing your deal. And so expect the unexpected and ensure that others in the um, organization also expect the unexpected and are, are prepared for that. Okay, second question. If you could change one thing about U.S. merger enforcement, what would it be? Elaine, you're up first then, George. Yeah, more transparency. Um, I already said this, but I, it, it really is what I would change. And I, that's especially important as new theories are being 
considered and the process that the agencies are taking in different cases is highly variable. I think having more transparency about what the agencies are doing, what they're looking at, why they make the decisions they make would be hugely helpful. Um, it would, I think it would impose rigor on the agencies if there was more transparency and it would help practitioners and companies um, know what to expect. George? I would return to a full-throated endorsement of the consumer welfare standard. It's good for consumers. It's good for the economy. It's good for international comedy. It's good for free trade. It's predictable. It's enforceable. And it avoids the paradox of hurting consumers in the guise of protecting competitors. So I would uh, go back to the tried and true and employ it rigorously. Thanks for that. We have some old listeners. We also have some young ones. So my next quick fire question is focused largely on the younger ones. What advice would you give um, somebody beginning a career in antitrust? George. I would advise that somebody beginning their career uh, brush up on their economic analysis, their microeconomic analysis. Um, even you know, get a textbook if you haven't done any economics in the past. Get an introductory micro textbook or industrial organization textbook and read it in your spare time and just become engrossed in the concepts because those concepts have driven the case law and, in my view, will drive enforcement policy going forward. Elaine, your advice to the young? I would read and ask questions. Um, ask the senior lawyers you're working with, all the questions that you have, even the ones that you think are dumb, um, read the antitrust cases that come out, read, I always tell people, and I hope I can still say this six months from now, um, read the merger guidelines every time you have a new transaction and see what pops and what you think, huh, that might be relevant on this one. Um, but re read as much as you can and reread and ask questions and also really immerse yourself in the facts of a case more than you think you need to. Um, you need to understand the products and both like the actual products and how the markets work and take the time to learn as much as you possibly can about your clients and their industries. So as you are both speaking, I was jotting down some of my own that I'll uh, happily share. There's a lot of overlap between what I was jotting down and what you were saying. So my six were be curious, Read widely and don't only read the law, read other things that are just well written that will help you with your craft, like the New Yorker to pick an example. Learn some economics. I agree very much with George. Use every case as an occasion to learn about the law that's relevant to that particular case. Fifth, put your head in the client's mind, the situation they face, the best course for them to adopt. And finally, and that's what this podcast is in part about, join the conversation. Antitrust is a fascinating discipline. It's an evolving one. And um, there's no limit to how interesting and enjoyable it can be to try to shape the debate. So next uh, quickfire question. Uh, what's your proudest achievement and your biggest regret, George? Um, so I'm going to keep it in the context of antitrust, if that's okay, Nick. I, I think I'm, I'll, I'll go with two proud achievements. One, I think, was the uh, FTC versus Staples case, where I represented the FTC, and we established the whole concept of unilateral effects and showing price impacts from a transaction. Uh, the other, I would say, is T-Mobile Sprint, where we established for the first time that 
that real efficiencies demonstrated and proven can make a company more efficient and therefore more competitive and can actually increase competition. So I'd say those two bookends are uh, both proud achievements. Uh, biggest regret, I would say, is uh, perhaps pursuing a case when I was at the FTC in my first career where I did not fully appreciate the benefits that an installed base firm with a strong market position, uh, the benefits that its customers could get from acquiring a new technology, which we characterize as nascent competitor. But really that technology would have allowed the installed base who was locked into the company, the monopolist, if you will, product to benefit from higher levels of technology. Uh, we successfully blocked that deal the new nascent competitor went out of business and the monopolists customers never got the benefit of that technology. So uh, you have to look at the facts. You can't be too focused on theory and not focused enough on facts. Thanks, George. Elaine, proudest achievement, biggest regret. Um, a proudest achievement is, and, and this is um, self-serving and, and clearly promoting, I suppose, but is the opportunities to get big global deals cleared with Cleary colleagues um, in Europe. And two that are particularly exciting for me, one with George, um, Dow DuPont, which was just an absolutely crazy transaction that had 24 clearances, um, and Google Fitbit, where we worked closely between the US and Europe um, and were able to secure clearance of that transaction. Th those are my proudest achievements. Um, I'm struggling a little bit on regrets. Um, I, uh, I, have many year, I'm, I have many years left in my career to develop them. I have no doubt. Um, there are a few emails that I you know, wish I hadn't sent. We'll, we'll say that. All right. So my final question is the question I usually pose to uh, guests um, in an effort to try to learn a little more about them. If there was one thing that's not widely known about yourself, can you share that with the um, uh, with the podcast listenership, Elaine. I am a diehard Buffalo Bills fan. <laughs> and what's Buffalo Bills for those like me who have no idea what you're talking about? Uh, American football team famously lost four consecutive Super Bowls um, during my childhood, and it stays with you for life when you live through your city's team losing four consecutive Super Bowls. But this year could be could be good. I feel the same as an Arsenal supporter. George? Uh, I'm an open book. There's nothing people don't know about me. <laughs> On that note, we will end. I predicted we'd have a very lively, very interesting, very provocative <laughs> podcast. You've not disappointed. Uh, George, Elaine, thank you very much for spending the time with us. Thank you out there for listening to the podcast. Look forward to welcoming you back soon. Thank you.